Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We are in our Torah of Shoftim, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 16, starting in verse 18, and that goes all the way through 21, verse 9. We're going to go into my spiel or commentary on this topic matter and what's covered here in this Torah portion, which there is a bit, quite a bit covered. Any comments or questions regarding this Torah portion that I can answer for you? Those who are online, uh, you, yes, uh, you go ahead, uh, Pamela, you, you may, uh, you have your hand up. Go ahead. And what do you have to say, dear? Um, in um, Deborah 20, verse 9, it says, after they have you know, decided who can be excused from the army, then they appoint the commanders to lead the division. So it's interesting. It's not based on if they went to West Point or, you know, if there's somebody's general son or something. It's based on who's left after those others have been disqualified. You, you bring up a good point. So uh, in, in the topic, when it comes to different the armies and, and, what's, and how they're addressed or how they're, 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 they're handled, um, yeah, the first thing first, you have to address who is not fit to battle. Uh, for example, you, you bring up a good point. Let's pretend uh, one of the people uh, that's not fit for battle happens to be the general. Maybe he is the commander of the army or whatever the case would be for him and his household, and he's not fit for battle. Send him home. Let him, let him go home and, and do what needs to be done prior to the battle. And then whoever's left over, then they can decide amongst themselves who is fit for battle in those instances. It's not about cowardice necessarily, although obviously some people, somebody could be afraid. But there's a reason to be afraid depending on your personal situation. So, for example, he's a good example. Um, Achan. Remember the man of Achan? He was a gentleman who he, during the fall of Jericho uh, with Joshua at command, he broke the rules. He broke the law about God and said, don't take anything out of Jericho. And of course, he saw nice garments, some gold there. He gathered them, hid them in his tent. His family knew about it. They, just, they dug a hole, buried it, and it was all being concealed. Then later on, of course, when un, unknown to Joshua, the army moved forward to the next town, and many people died. And what, what happened? And they, they had to go through a process of casting lots to narrow it down to something happened to Achan's household. And then, of course, Achan had to confess what he did. Then Achan and all of his household were killed for it in the Valley of Achan. So you have scenarios where an individual such as Achan, it would be better for him not to have gone to war because inside of himself, his own heart or his own mind was not right with God. So it may be in a given situation that somebody say, I am faint hearted. I don't want to go to war because I know I've done something evil in the eyes of God. And I have not atoned for it. I've not addressed it first. The rest of the nation may be holy, but I may not be. So I need to not bring my contamination into this battle. I may die before I got the opportunity, or at least not the opportunity, wrong word, before I took the opportunity 
to go address this problem that I've, that I've come across, that I've done or I've conducted myself with. So the scenarios which a, a commander, a leader, a king, a peasant may say, it's better for me not to be in this particular battle because I've done something that I need to address for first. It's no different. The Messiah's comment says, hey, when you have, go bring your offering to the temple, but you have something against your brother, the offering will not be accepted. You have to go address the brother first. It's the same scenario. I, I trust God will save me, but I'm purposely doing something evil in his eyes. Well, then go address the evil in his eyes first before you say God's going to save you. He may say, you know what? No, you're not willing to address the evil. I'm not going to address this problem. I'm not going to fix this situation for you. You have to address your, your, your errors already and hence the whole nature of fearing the Lord your God. That's the point of I fear God. Why do you fear God? Fear God all your days. He says it over and over again to fear him. Why? Because if you choose not to fear him, good things don't come your way, but more accurately, negative things are more likely to be carried out against you. So watch those things. So it's, it's in the best interest of the fellow military people to say, um, I'm better off not being in this. Be circumspect. Pay attention to your own actions, your own life. Better being not in this. Address my errors and mistakes first, then come back and then we'll go and deal in these battles that may, that may, come, may come about. In some instances, obviously, it points out there are scenarios which, while there's, there's things that, that, that we in our civilian life would say, that's a tragedy. So-and-so died before he got a chance to marry his, his fiance. That, that happened. We in the, on, the, on the civilian world feel, well, that, that's, that's a tra- tragic, tragic, a terrible thing to happen. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a military man. I've never been in the military. I've known, obviously, military people that I've, I've never been myself. The few, very small number that I know or have read about or familiar with, their personal lives when they're in the midst of battle is completely out of their mind. They talk about it. They don't even think about it. The dress is right here and now. Take care of the scenario here and now. So I don't know how, in the scenario given the Torah, how much an effect your personal life has in the midst of a battle. I don't know because I've never been in the military and never experienced it. Some have. Maybe they have a better input on that than I do. During a battle, whether or not your personal life would distract you enough in your thinking, I don't know. I've never been in it myself. Those of you who have been in, you're welcome to chime up and say, hey, yeah, it's like this or, or no, because I don't have an answer for it. In the Torah itself, it implies that your personal life would be a distraction to you. I don't know if that's true or not. I, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure. But if it is a distraction to you, then of course, obviously, you're better off not being in it uh, until the distraction is removed. Oh, that answers your, your, your comment there, uh, Pat, rega- or sorry, Pamela, regarding the, the, uh, the, the, the fact that you're allowed to bow out under given circumstances, what the circumstances happen to be in your personal life. Any comments, questions around this Torah portion we covered? Uh, yes, Rose. Hold one moment, please. 17, I guess. Chapter uh, 17. I was just wondering if Solomon read that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Solomon read that. So, um, long-standing Jewish, history, Jewish tradition, which Messiah, I'm sure, was extraordinarily familiar with. Uh, the whole, no, 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 not one yard or tittle removed from the law. So, that's a joke from back 2,000-year-old joke. Um, so, 
when you say when 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 the joke was when Solomon was when Solomon was was writing his copy of the Torah, this now this is a joke me. It's it's a legend told to children when they were little children two thousand two five hundred years ago for a couple hundred years. That when Solomon wrote down his copy, when it says you shall not multiply wives, he dropped the yod. Did you shall multiply wives for yourself? Hence the to- not one. Yod, the small mark, he dropped it. Now, I'm not sure that's actually true. I wasn't around in Solomon's day. I don't have a hard copy of what he actually wrote with his handwriting. But the legend is, supposedly, he did. Because his, 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 the, way, the way the story goes, the Levites who were watching over him were tired and watching and watching copy it. And they were getting distracted. And he was looking around and he just said, you know, marked it off because he changed it for him. So that's how the legend goes. It may be a total bogus. I have no idea. But the point is that when Messiah was around, as a child, he would have heard that story. And that would have been a common story being, oh, camera set up, thank, thank you. Uh, the common story being taught to children is, hey, even Solomon, the wisest of all men, even he broke the command. That was the point. So don't think yourself so wise, so great, that you can go beyond what the Torah commands you, even the smallest little mark. The smallest little tick mark that says not versus shall <laughs> was Solomon's error. And of course, Solomon being the wisest person had all the wives and such. He multiplied himself horse as well. And, 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 and I don't know how much gold he had. He said that copper became worthless during his day as dirt. So <laughs> it could have been, uh, it, obviously, it was very, uh, very commonly done, commonly taught. So, and hence, Messiah then comes to the scene and says, not one mark will be removed. A throwback to King Solomon and the story about him as a child. I mean, he as Messiah was a child, which he would have heard. Uh, been been the stories around a long, long, long time. Anyhow, so that's hence the point. So, did Solomon read this? I'm sure he did read it. Did he follow it? Obviously not. <laughs> but he read it. He may not have followed it, but he read it. Uh, so that's something to to, to consider or pay attention to. Uh, that yeah, there are. People are people, and we don't necessarily follow instructions well. Any comments, questions regarding this tour portion? We go before I go into my spiel on this on this uh, on this topic. Oh uh, yes, and let me fetch it. I can get the microphone. Where'd it go? Oh, there it is. I can spin around. Uh, so no, the legend is about Solomon. Correct. And Solomon would have been writing the scriptures too. And yes. As king, they're, yes. They're told to write. The yes. Scriptures. Okay. All right. That, that was how the story. So the instruction here in in the for kings was that when you're a king, you must write two copies of the Torah. All right. That was the instruction here given the Torah here, and it specified that because. One, you, you have a, 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 a scroll. It says the one the Levite, can t- Levite holds on to. So the scroll Levite has all the entire Torah, I, I presume from Genesis onward. I'm not sure whether there's, they're narrowing down to a section or not. But from, from whatever, oh, whatever they consider the Torah was at that point in time, you must write your two copies. One copy the Levite keeps in his possession proof that you, that you wrote it. Then the copy that you wrote, you keep, and you read and study your copy every day of your life. So you wake in the morning, your cup of coffee, <laughs> you read your, your, your scripture portion for how many chapters or sections you want to read, and then you go about your day. Every single day, you go through this process as a king. 
And that was the instruction. The Levite kept his very, very copy of yours to make him proof to following generations that yes, he did make a copy. Here it is. Whether he followed it or not, whether the king followed it or not, it doesn't matter. The Levites kept a hard copy of what you did. And the theory being that if you copied it down twice, you wrote down the, you wrote down the, it would stick in your head better. You'd remember it better because you wrote it down, having to duplicate everything a second time. But also any errors that you might make in a given copy, this Levite said, uh, that page is bad. We'll swap with this one out if they, if they make some kind of error or mistake at all, which did, does happen. Kings were not in, infallible. They had, they can make their mistakes and make their errors along the way. Were all those copies? Oh, I'm sure they long since were scattered about and used or burned. I'm sure some of the kings probably burned theirs or didn't bother doing it. Uh, admittedly, it had to be under Levite care. So the, there's a number of the kings, when they were ruling, the Levites were no longer functionally doing anything. So they probably didn't have such copies made at certain times in history. But presumably early on the kings did i can't swear all of them did but at least early on they probably had their copies that was the idea behind it at least uh see in the comments regarding this proportion so far we're going to our spiel otherwise my spiel not really yours it's kind of mine okay so in this tour portion the, the 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 two commandments we're focusing our attention on is uh honor your father and mother and a little bit of, of you should not murder. So uh, as, we, as we discussed before, the overall outline of Deuteronomy focuses on the Ten Commandments through majority of it and goes through each section. This section is dominated by the honor your father and mother. We ask, well, I didn't see a whole lot about mom and dad in here <laughs> because the nature of honor your father and mother has to do with transferring ownership from not just your own personal biological parents, but to your leaders to your judges, to your elders, those who are in charge of, that is your father, that is your mother as a nation or as a community. Does that make sense? So I may have a mom and dad, but that's just my personal biological mom and dad. But in reality, my city, my town, my household, my community also has a father and mother, those who are in charge of running it. When you were a child, who ran the household? Did you? No, you tried. <laughs> you rebelled enough. They should have. You should have run it by then. No, dominantly, you as a child don't run the household. Your parents do, or one of them does. Well, same principle in our city today, or city, or your house, the town you live in. Who runs your town? Do you? No. Who runs it? Your mayor, your city council members, your county, uh, uh, county, county council members. They run it. They are your fathers. They are your mothers. You have to honor them. Now, what about if they're corrupt? Rotten people. Yeah, guess what? That happens. Sometimes they aren't corrupt, but you just think they are. Keep in mind that too. You may be corrupt. So just because you think they're wrong doesn't mean they're wrong. You might be wrong. So keep check yourself that you're not in charge of city. God didn't put you there. There's a reason you're not there. So you may think they're doing everything wrong. That doesn't mean they are. It just means that you think they are. And you may be, in fact, wrong. So we, so we do have fathers and mothers in the form of judges and officers who run our cities and run our councils and run our counties and even our states or our, or, or our nations.
So we do, when, when the Bible says, honor your father and mother, that your days will be long, it equally transfers to honor the father and mother of your cities, nations, and counties, and states, because it, so that your days will be long. What happens if we don't do that? Oh, uh, Larry, you have your hand up and comment? Oh, go right ahead. Oh, we, find, we have to find the microphone again. Hold on a minute. The thing that I had been thinking about recently, that honor your mother and your father so that your days may be long on, on earth, I think it says. And um, I always thought that was kind of like a, a spiritual thing where they would be, you would just get rewarded by honoring your parents by having a long life. But then it occurred to me, if you didn't honor your mother and your father, you got stoned. <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe that's what it was a very practical thing. So watch out, you're going to get stoned. Yes, our next tour Porsche talks exactly about that, <laughs> about the nature of if you choose to dishonor your father and mother, you're stoned. Well, what happens if I dishonor my judge or my city council member? I get arrested, or in some cases, uh, other penalties may come as well, fines, whatever, whatever the case may be. So if I dishonor my parents, they may throw me out of the house. If I dishonor my, my nation, they may throw me in prison or out of the nation, some instances, or may prosecute me or even hunt me down if I did enough dishonor. They may actually kill me. There, there's some, a lot of things that can happen. So your honor and dishonor of somebody else who is greater than you is really important. Even if you don't think they're morally greater, the position they hold is greater. God put them in that position. You may think, well, but they're evil, corrupt human being. And that would be totally legit. They might be. That doesn't give us as a right to dishonor them. So my parents, not that they are, but they could have been evil, corrupt pagan worshipers. I say, well, I'm not going to obey the instructions they gave me on how to worship their God. That's not a dishonor to them. I'm not going to sit there and condemn them as human beings. They should all die for it or, or, or treat them in some evil way. They're still my parents. They still biologically are my parents. My city or judge may make in a corrupt order or corrupt, may taking a bribe. I may not like or disagree with the judge of the city. That doesn't mean I get to dishonor the judge, the position the judge holds or the office that the city council member happens to hold. They are more important. They're greater than I am in the authority given to them. I may not like it. I may vote against them and say, I would never vote for you. You're a terrible human being, whatever. That may be, you may, not, you may feel that way, but that doesn't mean we have the right to dishonor the actual office being held. It's no different than dishonoring a police officer. What happens if you dishonor a police officer? You're like yourself arrested or tasered <laughs> or something worse. It depends on where you live, right? Or how you live your life. So, you don't, we, don't, we, we, we respect the police officer, even if he might be or she might be a bad person. Because they're a police officer, authority is given to them to cause harm to me. I give them immediate honor. Well, why would we treat them any different than a judge or a city council member or a, 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 a county council member or, 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 or a mayor or a, a governor or a king or, or president, anybody else? The same authority is given to them as is your local police officer, which we honor them. Granted, they're armed, but that's the nature behind it. We honor those that can cause us harm. Well, these other individuals, they are of greater office and they can cause harm. Did you honor your parents even when you disagreed with them? You should. 
What happens when you don't? Not think, nothing really good happens when you don't. Uh, Larry, your hand's up again. Couple of a couple of examples of what honoring means. Ah, okay. So we honor something. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's many different, different, different ways which people use this form of honor. So it's holding it greater than yourself. Uh, the nature of honoring something or someone. Holding it greater than yourself. If I honored um, an object, I don't know, the building, for example. I may put the building that I'm standing in, my home, whatever, of greater value than myself. I give it an honor. Now, is it justified? No, of course not. But I may do that. I may give somebody who is older than me greater respect, greater value than myself. As it commands here, you will show honor the elders that walk in your walk in the room. You stand up in the presence of an elder. Is that you show them of greater value than you show yourself or something else? They might be uh, honor. For example, you can honor a pot over another pot. One might be for something that's only on Shabbat. Service. Some some of our households have special plates or special things we only bring out on Shabbat alone. They're they're decorative items. We that is given a place of honor that plate or that platter as opposed to the ordinary kitchen dishes you use every day or paper plates in the cupboard. Right. We'll, we'll discuss the wrong thing in a minute. We'll discuss it in a minute. But the nature of honor is to give something greater value than what is common around it. So I, hold, I may hold a special Shabbat plate as greater value or greater honor position than I will hold my paper plates or my, my red Solo cup that I'll throw away later. Right? <laughs> this is not of great honor as far as what I'm using it for. So I don't give it great honor. As uh, the Apostle Paul pointed out that some vessels are made for honor, some are for dishonor. And he used the citation as Pharaoh. Pharaoh, though, was a great king. He was made for dishonor. He was made to be killed. That was the nature of the when they came out of Egypt. So he was, even though his position, the office hell was high, he, the man himself, was made for dishonor. God's intent was to drown him in the Red Sea. So that was the, that, so he, the man himself, not the office he held, but the man himself was made for dishonor. The office, however, is still honored. So you may have a corrupt governor or a corrupt president or a corrupt police officer. The office held is of honor. The individual, however, may or may not be. That's, an, that's a secondary problem that we say vengeance belongs to God. He has addressed the, the individual themselves is not ours to address. The office was what we must honor. Now, I assume we just with the question. Oh, t- I can't see hand up. So yes, Tammy, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, I can't. I can't see it on the screen. But go ahead. Well, there are a few practical examples of honoring one's parents. Is you do not address them by their name. They are mom or dad. You don't address them by their name, and that's a um, something you would do for anyone who is older than you. You know, someone who is an elder, you wouldn't address them by their name. Um, we've lost a lot of that in these days, you know. Um, but uh, another practical example is, uh, is uh, like in the home, usually people feel comfortable. Like when they're sitting around the dinner table, usually everyone has, quote, their spot, right? Well, respecting your parents means that you never sit in their spot, their chair, their recliner, this kind of thing. Um, that you, the, so even if they're gone, you don't sit in their spot. Um, 
that, you know, those so, are, those are, those are common, common, common things that we do as a culture, just our own households are very, very common. That is done. You're, you're right. Yeah. We probably need to do more of that, but those are <laughs> probably wouldn't hurt. Uh, yeah. Uh, and your hand is up. Well, you did bring up the word respect because, yes. you know, I'm thinking of respecters of persons. Okay, so Bill Gates walks in the door. <laughs> you know, yes. And, and he says, okay, all you on Facebook, you know, any of you that have said the word Trump or you're for Trump, I'm just making up a story. Yeah, make up a story. That's fine. You, you know, you're all canceled. So get off of Facebook. You, you don't have an account anymore. So, I mean, the respecter of persons, how do you respect that? I mean, the honor, does, does he deserve the honor? I mean, he's canceling people and he's not even an officially elected person. It's an interesting question. So let me put this, let, let, let's, let's, let's turn the tables around a little bit to make it more uh, uh, simple as far as how I view it. I'm not saying you have to view it the same way I do, but you pretend we did. The people who run the building we're in right now, Shine Neighborhood Church, it's uh, the board that uh, runs the church. I don't know all their, their names. I think it's a three-person or, or five-person board, not sure. And uh, Nick and Josh Rattiani, of course, are the pastor and assistant pastors that help to run this church, right? Well, we are here renting from them at their mercy or their kindness. But they may come in and say, you know what? You guys are no longer allowed to be here because you teach something that is, that is antithetical to our belief system. Now, we as citizens, hey, this is their building. This is their church. This is their organization. This is their, their board of directors. This is their teachings. So our job is a yes, sir. Pack up our stuff, apologize for being offensive, and leave. All right? Now, when it comes to uh, the, 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 the Facebook or the, this book or the, the whatever, any electronic device, electronic systems you can think of or whatever you want it to say you're using. Who owns them? Do you own them? Did you make them? Do you maintain them? No, you don't. So if one of them says, we don't want you using our stuff anymore, it's, yes, sir, I'm sorry for being offensive. Pack up your stuff and leave. It's simple as that. But all my friends, no. Those aren't friends. Friends are people you, you, you can interact with as a real friend. A Facebook meme or Facebook uh, identity isn't really a friend unless you interact with them on a regular basis. We have these natures of honor. So when it comes to ownership, who owns it? That's the person who gets to use it. It's no different than if my governor comes in and says, hey, uh, people like you are no longer allowed to live in our state. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Packing my stuff and I leave. Because who owns the state? Well, they will, well, it belongs to people. Well, garbage. The people who own the state are the ones who are running and maintaining it. That would be your elected officials or your judges. They're ones who are running it. So until you get the opportunity to run it, and maybe you will one day, I don't know. But when you get to run it, you can run it in the way that you think is justified. But as long as somebody else owns it or maintains it or runs it, you have to honor their justification because you are nothing more than a guest. You may pay them for service. That's fine. But you're still a guest. We, we pay rent here this building, but we are also still a guest. You may, you, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go into the details beyond the point is that who runs it is the one who gets to actually dictate how it's being used. 
I may, I may not, you may not, you may agree with them, but you still have to honor the fact that they're the ones in charge. If you didn't like it, then make it yourself. And so you can be in charge. And that would be fine. That would be hard to do. I, I'm, I'm no desire to make a Facebook too, but it, maybe you would be opportunity to do so. Maybe tomorrow you make one up and the people will love it and it'll be the new best thing. But that's how, that's how we honor some, you are using someone else's product, either building or their, or their, or their service. Pay attention. It actually, they're the owners of it. Uh, Tammy, your hand is up, is up again. Go ahead. Yeah, Daniel, you, you're not too savvy with the social media. Um, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> which, which is fine. Zero problems with that. Whether yeah. you're talking about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, Snapchat, I mean, I can go through a whole list of them. They are free, meaning okay. that they um, make their money primarily through advertisements. Which so is your, it is in their the interests. To bring you things that will keep your eyes upon their app. So, so, so her, her comment regarding cancel being canceled off those apps. It's, it, is, it, is it the company canceling it or is it the other users canceling you? Well, depending on the situation, it can be a combination of both, meaning that um, if, you're, if you're a member of a particular group within Facebook, like, for example, Hillel Fellowship does have a Facebook page. Right. And right. people can make comments on there. But if we see, if somebody comes on there and they see fit to insult us, denigrate us, blaspheme the Lord, we can block them. We don't have to let them have their, quote, free speech upon our group's page. We can Which is block fair. them. Yeah. Right. So it's it's so, so, so in that instance you're using the same authority as the as the individual the company who made it use the same yeah. authority on your own in your own small uh, uh, small narrow window in your how you apply it to individual yeah. person or group. Yeah, but like um like you were saying, since you don't since we don't pay monthly fees to be on Facebook either personally or even corporately like with Hello Fellowship or you know bloggers will have their own groups or pages on Facebook none of those people pay a monthly fee for that so if Facebook some reason sees fit to say you know what we don't want that those comments or that on our page on our thing anymore they'll boot you out and they have the right to do that but you were saying earlier also the other point you were saying earlier was just perfectly valid that there are alternatives now. There are alternatives to Facebook called MeWe. There is alternatives to t- um, Twitter that's called Parler. There's an, even an alternative to YouTube. So if you want to make com- if you want to make little videos commenting on whatever the day's events, you know whether it's political or you want to talk about food or fashion or whatever, you can go on Rumble. I mean, these alternatives are starting to pop Alter- up options. exactly okay. because. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and these folks are starting are making- to block and kick out people who are saying things that are inconveniently true to their narrative. That's fair. That, so they so have alternate choices. So yeah, that would address uh, Anne's comment. It's no different than I guess if, if, if Sunnywood Church kicked us out of this building, we just find another church to go, to go rent. Yeah, right? we'd hear from somebody else. 
Because we can just know, choose somebody else to use if, as long as other buildings, which is totally legit. That that's a fair that's a fair uh, 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 methodology. Doing it is also different than me kicking out a guest out of my home. Yeah. I, I allowed you to stay here for a certain number of weeks or months. Now you're being disrespectful to my household. You can now pack yourself up and go and not come back. It's the same principle, right? Yeah, it's, it's all it's all the same because I'm the owner. What I, happened I, to I, us at the Grange to some extent, or what exactly, happened to exactly. us at the Wishman Hall? Yep, the Grange to Wishman Hall. We were we were no longer considered acceptable or. A uh, 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 worthwhile staying guests. Therefore, we left. Did we make a and big hullabaloo about it? Did we, we have protests? Stink? What was that? Yeah, we didn't cause a big. We didn't cause a big stink. Nope. We didn't sue them. We oh, just said, okay, you know, that's fine. See you later. We'll go somewhere else. And we did. God yep. opened that? doors for us. Yep. In those regards, so uh, Larry, you have your hand up. Well, I'm thinking that this gets a little more complicated than that. Obviously, because at some point, if you have a lease on a place, then there's somebody above the owner because the, the, he, if he violates the lease, then you don't have to move out because he said so. Yeah. So when it comes to, so, so I, I, we're going a, a bit off tangent. Yeah. So here we have, um, we, we obviously, we, we were using citation example of things why you can get removed out of a given, a given space. Um, so honor when I have a judge or a leader, these individuals are in charge. Now I may like agree or disagree doesn't make a difference. They're, they're just in charge. Now I have a judge or a leader of a city or a council makes a difference. When you're sedition there, Larry, regarding a lease. A lease is a contract. Well, contracts are under contract law. By our contract law, judges says, what does the contract say? The contract says this or says that. You signed it. You're under the contract. So the judge says the law, the contract, is, is binding. It's a binding contract. So what was that? On both parties. So it's a binding contract. So the judge points out that, hey, all, we're, all he's doing, a judge is just reading a given contract. You are honoring the contract. Let's put this back to Torah, okay, in this example. The judges in our Torah portion, what is their function? What's their job? To read the instructions in Torah, apply it to the given situation. This is no different than a judge reading a contract. The Torah is the contract. So the judge or city leader's job is to read the Torah, which is a contract. Write it down. Torah. It's a contract. Correct. Spell that. The Torah and contract are the same thing. They're documents. That's all they are. The judge reads the Torah because you did some crime. Guess what? You have to now pay for the crime. The judge reads a contract says, hey, this country, you must do something or not do something. Whichever party it is, then that's what the contract says. It's pretty straightforward. But the judge's leader is the one who has the authority to do those things and read it. I, as an ordinary contract holder, if I held a contract, could say to my other party, hey, you're violating this contract. And I can talk till I'm blue in the face. But if they're not going to bother hearing me because they disagree with me, I can't do anything about it. Hence, we both go over to the judge, say, hey, judge, Please read this contract and verify between the two parties of the, of the two members 
who is in violation and who is not. If there is a violation, what is the proper recourse? Now, in some instances, the contract is so poorly written that there is no recourse spelled out, in which case the judge has to make his own decision or judgment on what a fair recourse is. In some rare instances, the judge may say, hey, we're going to end this contract both you go your ways. And sometimes there may be some compensation, some whatever going back and forth that the judge makes his, his or her decision on that contract. But the contract is no different than reading the Torah or your covenant, whatever you have between two parties. It's a document. Does that make sense? You lease a building and, the, and you are allowed to uh, build uh, or put a new door in to a, say, to a different room. And that's in the, in the lease as you can modify the environment. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the landlord comes in and says, hey, I didn't want that there. I go, well, it's in the lease. I can do that. Well, you have to get out. I, no, I don't have to get out. So there's somebody above him at that point who becomes the one that gets honored. Which is the judge. Right. The judge. The maybe. judge will be honored in that, those instances. Now, if you'll notice here in our Torah portion, it explains it, which is how our modern day judicial system works, is if things get too complicated for those who are simple, such as two men, two people, two, two disputes. In this case, the side issue you have is a dispute the owner and the, and, and the lease holder, the person who's leasing from them, and they have this, this, this dispute in case the, the, the door is your, is your citation. There's this door is a dispute, they would go to a judge. The judge may decide this is too complicated for me, and they go higher. But the point is you two both went to some authority that is greater than you, which is the one who reads the contract out loud and decides how it's, whether it's written correctly or incorrectly, or lawyers, or some kind of arbitration. If for some reason those judges can't handle this, if they're out of their jurisdiction, you go to the one that is within the jurisdiction. You do the exact same thing that our tour version tells you to do. Uh, yes, Jeff. Except one of the things that we see today is that uh, there is something now above the judge and above the law and that is disproportionate impact, which is specifically addressed in this Torah portion. You do not respect one party over another. However, today, there is a judicial principle that is above the law, and that's disproportionate impact, which does take into account your one person and their situation and their characteristics over another person. Right. And to favor them, even if their position is not legally tenable. And that's, that's something which I, I cannot, uh, personally speaking, that's just me speaking. I'm not saying I'm right. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't lean that direction. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't advocate that position. Uh, to me, yeah, well, neither does American law. Right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not justified in saying, well, his citation is, if something happens to be terribly poor, or it affects their, their, their household more severely than somehow they, they, should, they should be let out of or, or somehow get, given a pass. And that doesn't work for me personally. It's, it's an immoral status in my viewpoint, my worldview, because laws are applied as laws are written. There are obviously scenarios which someone broke a law and someone did not. With lawbreaker, unfortunately has to be some kind of penalty. Now, you can make the penalty mild or strong. I'm not going to argue that, but it still rules against the individual who, who made the violation. That's my worldview because that's my biblical worldview, and I don't, I don't respect the variation. I mean, sorry, not respect the person or the judge 
I disagree with that ruling. However, even if I disagree with the ruling, I have an obligation to follow it, which is a hard part. I'm still obligated to follow the ruling, though I think it is morally corrupt or wrong. That's the law. Our Torah portion is very explicit about that. It doesn't care if the ruling was right or wrong. It points out here, I think it's in verse, uh, oh, where was it? And the uh, a judgment, whether you agree with it or not, I can't remember the verse where it is off the top of my head. As far as when, when, when you go before a city and you stand and, and the judge makes a rule, you don't get to deviate right or left from the ruling, even if you think it's wrong. You don't get to deviate. Now, this is, comes up periodically in certain scenarios, and I'm not going to go through every imaginable scenario, but it can't go, which you may have to make a moral choice. Okay, I think it's wrong to do. But I'm not allowed to deviate, so I have to leave. So I, that's fine. Now I would leave, and that—that's how it would usually work. So you go ahead. This, this is, this is, this is, this. I want to go. That's. We can discuss any topic while we're te- here. Technical details we're talking about, really. The Torah is really not a contract because that's a covenant. Right. It, it, and the covenant yeah. is where one person says, "Look, if you do this, I'll do this for you." But you don't get to say, oh, well, I want to change this. In a contract, each person gets to define the terms until they all get settled. You're right. Technically, the, the, the Torah is a type of covenant. I was using this example as a document more than anything else. Oh, Tammy, your hand is up. But the Torah, I, even though I use my drawing here as Torah as contract, actually, Torah is a document. I was, in this reference here I have in this, this diagram, is I was using it as a document. The Torah is a document, it's a contract document. A covenant is a document. The, read, the judge's job is to read the document and then say, this is what the document says. This is how we're applying it. Uh, Tammy, you have your hand up? At least in America, we do have certain kinds of contracts which are not really two-sided contracts in the sense of that both parties actually literally hash things out together with their attorneys and literally hash out an agreement. Um, you think about examples are a lot of the insurance contracts we have, whether it's our health insurance, our auto insurance, our home insurance. You didn't sit there with an agent and hash out your definition of all those terms. It's a one-sided contract that you either sign or you don't. But the thing, though, is, is that in American jurisprudence, at least, because those contracts are actually only written by one side and the other side, all they do is either agree or not, um, once they, agree, once they technically agree to it, any um, disputes, any um, fuzzy gray areas, anything that can um, be um, interpreted one way or other has to always be interpreted in the favor of the person who did not actually write the contract. So any ambiguities or things that are confusing, that are squishy, that can go one way or another, have to be interpreted in the favor of the person of the side that did not actually write the contract, which is the insured rather than the insurance company. Is that why the paperwork is so long? <laughs> well, that's yes. why in insurance contracts, a good two or three pages are where they, where they literally define the terms that they later on use. Like, what is the definition of a house? What is the definition of a car? You know, they literally go through and define the definition of an automobile with four wheels, this many axles, you know, this, this much tonnage or whatever. Because vehicles that are smaller than that would not be considered automobiles. They'd be classified as something else, whether it's motorcycles or whatever. So that's why they go through that, to define those terms. 
that are under the contract, but they're all one-sided. At the end of the day, you either sign it or you don't. But if you sign it, then any ambiguities have to be interpreted in your favor. But that would have been unknown back in the days of the tour was written. Yeah, because you wouldn't no. write a contract that way back then. It wouldn't work no. that way. You have two parties no. putting in their two cents throughout the entire thing. They're hashing out all the details. Today we don't apparently don't do that. I, it, I, I am not in a legal person world, so I don't I don't know all the details of that. But that's that's interesting. I mean, at least it just gives you some some hope of a slight benefit on the on the resignee. Um, uh, 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 Rivia, your hand is up. Sometime back, someone said that you call you the people who are older than you not by name. Does that mean I have to call my older siblings not by name? <laughs> Good question. So her comment, yeah. So uh, Tammy may put the, the site is to, to show honor one of the methodology we do so is we, we to your parents as mom or dad as opposed to their, their first names, which is very commonly, uh, commonly the first name is usually dropped when you when your parents to a child. And it comes to someone who is older than you, it's Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. It's also very commonly done. Um, and yet, so, but when it comes to your siblings, dear, uh, your siblings are the same family generation as you. And so typically, the honor and respect is not given the same way because you're, you're equals. You're all siblings of each other. Now, don't get me wrong. Your oldest brother and your older sister are still more responsible than you are when it comes to we have to leave you at home and take care of things. You still have to listen to them because we, we as your parents put them in charge of the household while we're not there. So although you may not have to call them Mr. Isaac or Mr. H or whatever, uh, as, as you would me or as an adult, you still have to pay attention that they are still, when they are given, they, your mother, I pass authority over to them to take care of you guys and protect you from harm when we're not home. You're still responsible to show them the respect that the authority we gave them. But when we return home, that authority is removed from them. So it's a temporary transfer authority that your parents give to your older sibling to be in charge of the household when we're not gone. But it, it is temporary. Well, in, Asian, in Asian cultures, you actually do have titles for the oldest siblings. That's true. Actually, not just Asian. Uh, I believe it, it is in. Uh, 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 Puerto, Rico, uh, yeah, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican culture, same way. They also have a title for the oldest, oldest son, oldest, uh, yeah, usually oldest son. They have a special category they fall into. And <clears throat> that's not in the American culture, but it is in, in that culture. In our culture, this is how we do it, in particular, my family and my household. Um, yeah, so honor respect is usually to your parents or to those who are authority over you. If, however, Rivka, if your brother winds up getting elected to some potential office, in some wherever, then guess what? You respect the office he holds. And you may not be that you may not like it, but guess what? He has respect it. He winds up being a police officer one day. You don't get to treat him like your older brother and 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 disregard him. He still has to hold the office. And you may not like it, but that's just how it's going. <laughs> but the vice versa happens too, Rivka. If you grow up and you become a governor of something, guess what? He has to show you the honor. So it goes both ways because it's the office you're holding. Either you both happen to be siblings. Okay, uh, let's do a little beyond that. Uh, the whole as before, the whole context of the Torah portion is based on the idea of um, of of honoring or positioning your honor for your father or mother or the high courts or whatever the case may be. You will also note that uh, in this Torah portion, we also have a court system listed out here. I find this court system uniquely interesting. I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. Um, in the form that it also happens to match in many ways our modern day court system. Get a new sheet of paper out here. I'm going to draw this out. 
this work. Those are online. We have in our drawing here the different court systems. So we have in uh, verse, let's see here, verse uh, 17, 8, 8 through 13 or so, it essentially is, is what we discussed, the, the different court system. Our U.S. Supreme Court system actually follows this pattern very well. So we go through a high court system. High court, let's spell this correctly. And the high court has authority over all matters that are too great for lower courts. Now, our high court, now in our tour portion, it says quite plainly, the idea was to use the high court were judges and priests. Well, you will note in our country, our high court actually operates very similarly to the priest class in our Torah portion. They even have the same robes as far as a priestly like robes they put on when they make judgments. They have their sacred document. You heard the sacred halls of justice? Yeah, that's a reference to our high, high court system. So our high court has their sacred documents. What do we call it? The sacred document a high court uses. The Constitution, the document itself is our Constitution. So our Constitution is our nation's high sacred document. Well, in our religious belief, belief, belief system, what's our high sacred document? We use it, the Torah. So even our high court system, if it's a comp- difficult, too, t- topic is too difficult, and there are topics difficult. Sometimes multiple judges will have different uh, opinions there are lower courts that will rule in the opposite directions based on their interpretation of the, our sacred document. And our high court then, with their, they put their robes on, they put their, their religious robes on. They even, even our high court building has the religious symbols of prophets of old engraved on it, on the outside of it, and the, of Moses and the Confucius and all the various, Buddha, all the various different, 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 different class of religious groups indicating that this is a religious institution, that this sacred document is sacred. The Masons, it does. So, they, so they, they, this, the high court system is our constitution, is our Torah-based system. We may not think of it that way, but in reality, that's actually what it is. It's the process identical. Our high court uses their sacred document to read, which is our constitution, and apply it to a given scenario. In our Torah portion, the high court wouldn't be called high court, it's usually called the priest, usually the high priest, and the, the king or judge. And they read the sacred document, in this case, the Torah, and they apply it to your scenario. So our legal system is based off of our Torah instruction. So it tells us the men who wrote our legal system are smart. Who were they? Well, the, the founding fathers of our nation, right? That tells they read their Torah. They read the Bible and they matched to make it match as closely as they could without forcing a particular religious viewpoint. Does that make sense? So they, our, 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 our founding fathers said, All right, we need a constitutional Torah system that matches the Torah's way of life without actually saying you must follow the Torah. Does that make sense? They tried to mimic it. They did a very good job. I won't say it's perfect, they did a very good job. All right, so that, that so keep in mind, we still have to respect the same judges that we always put in, into our system. And just like our high priests were back in the Torah, our high court are appointed for life. The high priests are appointed for life. See, they even tried to mimic the, the, the way in which the individual is, lives is also copied. The, 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 the Supreme Court ruled that once they're a selected position, 
you're there forever until, of course, you retire or die. And the Torah portion, all the same thing. Hey, the high priest, when he's high priest, he's there until he dies. It doesn't, we can't just vote him out of office. It doesn't work that way. Um, now, granted, we won't go into the details of the number of people in the Supreme Court, but the point is that this is how the process is supposed to work. And when the high court makes a ruling, we don't get to say, I'm not going to follow your ruling. It's the high court. Your nation, they rule the nation. You don't get to say, I don't think you're right, therefore I'm going to disagree with you and go the opposite. It doesn't work that way. They've already ruled. They're not going to rule a second time on the same topic. They've already discussed this. They move on. They move on past it. Um, let's move on past this a little bit. Let's just write this. This is how our Torah portion happens to work. Um, I won't go through all the king. The, as we obviously know, the king is, is acts as a judge. He's subject to the same laws that everybody else is. He doesn't have his, 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 his own category of judging. Uh, we already discussed a little bit about uh, King Solomon and the traditional one as far as leaving out, uh, leaving out uh, uh, subject matters. But I do want to bring something up to question for you in this Torah portion. Scratch piece of scratch paper here. Aha, uh-huh. here's my other scratch paper. I knew I had more. There it is. More scratch paper. Okay, so in this uh, Torah version, I have a question for you. Now, don't answer it out loud, but think about it for a minute. You will note that in chapter 17, verse 16, it says, the king will not multiply horses. Why? Why not? He says, because they could return to Egypt. What do horses, what does that matter for multi horses? And why does that mean I have to return to Egypt? I mean, oh, I could do the literal, oh, well, Egyptian had, they had the, 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 the chariots and such. Okay, that's physical. I get that. But what does it mean to multiply horses and how do horses, be multiply horses, attached to Egypt? Why are they connected? Are there not other nations that had chariots? Well, yes. Hittites were famous for their chariots. Why can't I say, oh, we're not going to match the Hittites? Or if I pass them, I'm not going to match uh, uh, I don't know, any, any of the North African tribes that had abundance of horses, all the Arabian horses. Right? Why Egypt? What, what, is, what is the connection between horses specifically in Egypt and regarding to king? Why is that, why is that attached? Because it, it is a relatively non-secular. It doesn't, doesn't follow. Yeah, they have chariots, but a lot of nations had chariots. Look at Assyria. They had abundance of chariots. A whole lot more than Egypt ever had. Why isn't it the same as following Assyria versus Egypt? And God said, don't return to Egypt. Don't follow this way. I'm leading you out. Don't ever return this road. Why is most attaching to Egypt and horse together? When he, there are dozens of countries that had lots of horses and used them. Well, there's a lot of things here going on here. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean coming out of Egypt? What did that mean? What was symbolically? I don't know physically. What, spiritually, what does it mean coming out of Egypt? What was Egypt known for? What was that? So we bondage. Had a lot of bondage. So Egypt was known, Egypt in particular, were known for a number of things. Bondage. Idolatry. Oh, idols. I can't spell idolatry. Uh, bondage, well, bondage is a type of slavery. Idol worship. And was the other thing they're known for? Sexual 
strange deviation, sexual deviation. Um, I'm not sure I spelled deviation right. It doesn't matter. Those are top things that Egypt was known for. Yes. Uh, anything else? Pharaoh himself was arrogant and made himself out to be God. That's and true. So, we'll write that down. So Pharaoh and the horses somehow to me. Oh, H, thank you. Uh, was a godlike. Pharaoh was godlike. Self-proclaimed. So Pharaoh's a godlike power as far as what, what he was claimed to have. So when we think of these are all these are all good examples that we have here. So we think of Egypt when God says or Moses said specifically, don't return to Egypt. Is he talking about the physical land, a territory of don't the borders right here, don't cross the border because that's the problem of the border? No, that would be absurd. You may have business dealings, and in Judaism tradition, they, they, they refer to business things. You cross any border you want for business. It's just a matter of doing a job or t- doing a task done. But if I don't want to return to Egypt, what do I not want to return to? I don't want to return to obviously slavery and bondage. And of course, the 10 plagues, folks, and the idols, the, the, the gods of each, the 10 plagues were struck against. The sexual deviation, which Leviticus 19, I think, has talked about over and over and over again in so many different ways of how the different sexual deviations and practices that they did. And of course, Pharaoh, of course, being like God himself in many ways. So, what are the, so the when we look at the horses, the horse connected to Egypt and in, in the, they'll return there. Well, so, if I look at all these things, as how do these things relate to horses? How does bond relate to a horse? How does sexual deviation relate to a horse? How does fair things of God relate to a horse? Or, or idols relate to a horse? Power? Well, that's an interesting question. But we have a good question. We have a good comment there, Anne. So let's look at this a little bit here. Now remember that this, the, the section here we're discussing, the Torah portion here we're discussing, focuses most of the attention on the idea of honoring father and mother, judges, city leaders, kings, governors, things of that nature. That's the, the mental glasses picture to put on when you're reading this, these Torah, this Torah portion section. So we're dealing with honoring kings. We're dealing with kings. And we ask, what, what, what is a king's ultimate goal? What makes you a king? Power makes you a king. Control over someone else makes you a king, right? If you're a control over no one, are you a king of anyone? No. You may argue king yourself, but it, you know, you could, oh, that's not really much a king per se. So a king's function in life, his goal in life is to be king. And how do you be king? Is be over someone else. The power over, that's, that's the nature of kings. When they're kings, it's a power over someone else. Uh, yes, Rose, your hand is well, up. Well, it says in 1 Kings uh, 4.26, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Yep. So he had the power. A lot of power, right? Well, horses have to do with who has the power. Who has power. So let's discuss this nature of power. From a king's perspective, to have power, how does a king gain power over someone else? What methodology does he have? He can either enslave someone they voluntarily choose to be under that king's influence, 
or he threatens by death or killing as without to overpower or be control of someone else. That's a method which kings use. We had that referenced to us a Torbush early on with Abraham and the king, king of Sodom when, he, when, he, when they had their interaction. Sodom said, keep all the stuff. I want the people. I don't want the stuff. Because why? Well, he's not a king of anything unless he has people to rule over. There's no people. He's no longer king. So the king of Sodom said, I want the people. I don't want the, the money. I don't want the animals. I just want the people. So king, the king of Sodom wanted the people. Abraham knew that. Abraham said, no, no, no. I, you can keep the stuff. I want nothing from you. But the king, he knew his power was based solely upon rule of human beings. That's what makes you a king. So we do this with this king. We have this, this king of or so king of Israel not being one of being horses or not being horses because what a horse represent? How do kings gain power? By usually military or some kind of a political influence over someone else. In this instance, with the horses, that's usually military. What would, what would money and gold, what would gold do? Gold and silver. You can pay, you can buy people, you can buy, or I'm so wealthy, as King Solomon was, I'm so wealthy, money flows to me, and supplies of you will flow to me as gifts because I'm so wealthy, right? So money gains you power. Now, what is it we do with, with wives, of course, with the wives, and that's, that's an internal heart thing. So we'll discuss the wives in this. We're discussing the, the horses in particular with Egypt, how the connection is. So Egypt, its power to control the people and enslave them was based in what? Was it based in its sexual deviation? Was that the reason it controlled the slaves? No. Was it, blaze, was it based in uh, Pharaoh thinking he's a god? Is that because all the, all the slaves thought he was a god? No, that didn't work either. Um, he kept power over the slaves. By what authority? Think of this. Look at this real quick. Ready? Whack. 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 Fear, pain, slavery, whips. That's the method how he kept to maintain his control. If people are no longer afraid of you at all, do you have control over them? No. So what did Pharaoh maintain his control with? Fear, power of causing harm to someone else. So the king of Egypt used horses is just a symbol of control or power over someone else in order to maintain that power, maintain that authority over them. Horses is more than a symbol. You can argue the same thing with, with whips or chariots. It makes a difference. The idea is I'm using my military power to gain strength or control over someone else, in this case, to return people to bondage. When a king is, a, is feared by his people, what are they? They're enslaved to him. You people, you're ruled by fear. People do whatever you tell them to do because they're afraid of you. In, in many ways, a nations, and that's the nature, nature of all governments. People and governments, whether modern day or old, they, run by, they rule by fear. That that's, that's the nature of how the process works. I'm not saying it's the best process, how it works. It's not by love. We don't follow our nation because we love our, our present or love our, our rulers. We follow it because we're afraid if we don't. <laughs> what happens when we don't? Bad things happen when we don't. So this horse being connected to Egypt has to do with a king's perspective. A king's perspective is the horse connected to power. 
And that's how, you, that's how we gain or how we gain influence as a king. The horse respect are related to power, where to control. So don't return to Egypt when, when that phrase is being mentioned in a king's perspective is don't return to try to gain power over your fellow man, either your own citizenry or other nations. That's the connection to horses. If I have a king who has a million tanks versus a guy who has a slingshot, which one am I going to like to be afraid of? The slingshot or the million tanks? The million tanks, right? So if I have a million horses or a thousand horses or chariots versus the guys who have some pitchforks or rocks, the power we lean toward, the power is a, oh, yes, oh, mighty, whatever your name is. Uh, what do you want from me? You want money? You want influence? You want my property? It's yours, otherwise I die. So the nature of this is, the idea of turning to Egypt is return to the, 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 the nature of what Egypt, how they were treating their citizenry. If you recall correctly, it was Joseph who pointed out that when the Egyptians, the citizens, not the slaves, the citizens ran out of food, ran out of money, ran out of, of, of everything else, he said, we'll buy your land and you will be slaves to us. So the citizenry of Egypt voluntarily became slaves in order to survive. That's the power that Egypt used at that time back with, with, with Joseph. So we know this bondage and slavery thing can be done multiple ways, but then Pharaoh, of course, becomes owner of the individual people. So we deal with this power. It's the power of a king. The king desires horses because he desires people to follow, follow in the form of, 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 of enslavement or of fear, because horses represent fear. So do not return to Egypt. Do not return to fear of your king. Don't allow your king to get power over you such that you are afraid to disobey them or afraid to say, they are too great for me. I will do whatever evil thing they tell me because I'm afraid of them. Don't allow the king to amass so much power. The citizenry is afraid of them, even though they may be evil. Uh, yes, Larry. I, I think that, um, that when he says don't multiply horses, He's got to have a certain number of horses in order to run the country, right? Defenses, right. So he's talking about going overboard and becoming like Pharaoh. Maybe. Right. To, 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 to dominate excessively, to dominate, uh, increase beyond, beyond minimum requirements. We don't need a police state. We don't need to become like North Korea in order to just function everyday life here, right? But we could, theoretically, the king could become, or president could become like North Korea, make it, make it to where we're afraid to either look wrong or not smile or even use the, the a wrong word, and all of a sudden now our whole family is thrown in prison forever. Because that would be one methodology of ruling. That is multiplying excessive power over yourself, or in, 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 your, in your own means, in your own methods. So these are natures as far as we pay attention to. The, we, have to we have limits on our kings, which our government was designed to be that way, though many argue it's not so much anymore. But that's what it was. It was supposed to be there to limit the power and distribute it around it so no one person could accumulate too much because presidents are instinctively built to gain power. And so we have to watch out for that. Hence here, the Torah has kings are instinctively designed to build and gain power. That's what they do. That's their function of being a king. How do I make myself more kingly, more powerful, more in charge? All right. That's the nature of the horse. It's not about to say the horse itself. It's about the desire to gain power over fear and control of the individual citizenry. That's the nature of what it's, what it's referring to. 
Okay, <clears throat> let's do a pass disc. I think I have no idea what time it is. Do we have a clock, do we have a clock on them? 255? I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. Good time. So it's almost three o'clock. All right. Uh, oh, here's a clock on my phone. She, she, she gave me a phone. That's great. Okay, we'll end with this one topic here. Um, I'm going to go through all the rest of the Torah portion because there's the, 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 the subject matters themselves are pretty straightforward. We understand false witnesses. We understand no one person to say, well, I don't like so-and-so. I saw, she said some, make, make it up off the top of my head, bad thing about this thing. Therefore, be a killer. One witness isn't worth anything. You get to have multiple independent witnesses. We understand that concept. In modern day, we see the same concept. Witnesses are not allowed to collaborate on what they what they, they they saw or what, what experience they had uh, to, to avoid uh, false testimonies. It, one thing in this Torah portion I do like, which be interesting, is because if false witnesses are found out, they lied. What they intended to have happen to the other guy happens to them. Now that may help assist on false witnesses or false testimonies. We did that to modern day. So, hey, uh, if you're wrong, if you're lying, and we find out you're lying. Whatever you wanted this happen, whatever they were charged with goes on upon you instead. That may clear up some of our court system pretty quickly, I'd imagine. <laughs> some false, uh, false commentary here or there, or even professional witnesses. And they may say, wait a minute, uh, let, me, let me rethink if I, want, if I want to be involved in this or not. I want to point out to you also is that unlike modern day, uh, this Torah portion in, in Israel in general, it was not permitted that uh, executions were done by a professional hired somebody else. You yourself were involved with it. Like that's hard. It's icky. It's gross. It's emotionally traumatizing to be the executor when you don't want to be. Well, it was supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be an undesirable, hateful thing, emotionally traumatizing to the person who has to do it. It makes you not want to. That's the point. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want it to happen. We don't want to have to kill somebody because they committed a murder. That's the goal. Murder is supposed to be a reprehensible thing. And the Torah does not allow, doesn't want people to be removed so far from it that they don't have to see, pay attention to, hear, or know about it. They say, oh, so you know, the state killed a dozen people this past month. Oh, okay. And we move on. That wasn't the goal. The goal was that you yourself would have to be involved with it and you would hate it and abhor it. That was the objective. So we've done ourselves a somewhat disservice in a modern day country, in our modern day system of trying to, uh, to, to sanitize the process of executing murderers by having hired people take care of it for us instead of the actual victim's families. That was the, the intent was the victim's families to deal with it. And they would hate to do it. And they would be emotionally traumatized in their own spirit having to go through the process. That was the goal. That that trauma would, be, it would sink with inside you. That would be a good thing. That you would avoid such evil things. And that you and your family would, would hate having to go through the process. And that would spread out the whole, all the whole world would know because everybody had to do the same thing periodically. They'd all hate this process and they would have to handle and deal with it the difficult way that was supposed to be the, the, what the intent was but uh anyway so we have these these, these different different processes as far as how, how how people were executed and such we won't go through all the details of that because it doesn't matter um i want to bring i want to conclude with one topic though 
in the case of prophets. <clears throat> so it is commonly done in Christianity. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, just common in Christianity, referring to chapter 18 when it says, uh, I will send you someone in my, the, the, like me, most for, that it was strictly referring to Jesus. Um, that is a, not a wrong, but it's too narrow of a viewpoint. And chapter 18, when it discusses that God will send a prophet to you it, that's like me, most of like me, he's referring to each of the prophets, all of them, each one of them every time. A prophet means someone who can speak in God, communicate from, from God through the prophet to you. Because we told him back at Mount Horeb, we don't want to speak to God directly. And God said, that's fine. Therefore, I will speak like Moses through a prophet instead. And God said that was okay. That was our covenantal agreement. We agreed, God, don't talk to me directly. I'm too afraid of you. And now modern day, 4,000 years later, 3,000 years later, we still don't get to talk to God directly because God remembers. We forget, but God remembers. So God doesn't talk to us directly. We still have to learn through prophets, through messages, messengers, instead of God just saying, Hey, God, can you just say this or that? My life is so much easier. You just told me, do this or do that. How many of us have ever wanted that in our lives? Just say, I'll do whatever. Just tell me it's this or that. And I'll do it. We've all been there. <laughs> that was, and God said, hey, here's, this is what I'll do. Do this or that. And our ancestors, our forefathers, were too afraid. They said, oh, no, no, God, don't answer those questions, please. Don't talk to us directly. Don't answer questions in this way. I'll only want to hear through prophet. And then God, of course, 3,000 years later, is still honoring that rule. I will be through prophet. So this section refers to prophets, referring to each of the prophets. Isaiah is included in there. Uh, Jeremiah is in this, is the exact same person he's talking to, talking about, sorry. Uh, Amos, uh, all the, the, the minor prophets that we're familiar with, it's every one of them. And we know it's every one of them because it says, if the prophet speaks falsely, then you will know he's speaking falsely and you can then execute or, or punish him accordingly. So it's not, can't be Messiah only because I obviously didn't speak falsely, but we have to pay attention that this is every prophet's test this way. So this whole portion, it is inclusive of Messiah, but not exclusive to Messiah. It includes all the prophets along the way because each one of them are like Moses, not identical because God spoke to Isaiah differently than he spoke to Jeremiah, differently than he spoke to Daniel, differently than he spoke to, 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 to Miriam, differently than he spoke to Deborah. He spoke to them all differently. No one was identical, but each one of them were their own prophet. So we, we check prophets and check against what they say, what they, what, they, what they argue. And that's how we as people have to verify when God's talking to us and when he's not. Because it, Frequently, he's not. Pay attention. He won't be speaking to us in this way all the time. We don't have a lot of modern day prophets. I can't think of one off the top of my head. There might be one uh, in modern day today. So we have our Torah to work with, which pretty much everything is written down there. So it's pretty straightforward. But that's where our prophets and information is at. Um, I'm not going to go through uh, the other nations and offering peace and such in the wars because that's, that's going past my time. We discussed the whole all qualified to fight and not fight, and who was who afraid to fight too. So, don't. So, when you walk away from the today, think of the few things we we covered importantly is that number one, you don't face your difficulties when you're not in a good place. All right. So, when you have your fears, we talked earlier, your fears of war, 
you're afraid, you may be afraid of it. There might be a good reason why you're afraid. Address your problems first before you sit there and say, okay, God, now I'm going to go fight for you. He, that may be great. You have the heart to go fight for him on his behalf. Go be a missionary, whatever you want to do. But address your problems first. Clean up your house first. God works the own house first before he says, now let's help you help someone else. All right. That's the nature of how he works with people in general. And even Messiah said the same thing. You, you, the, 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 we're dealing with clean up your own details before you start spreading around your ideas, the whole speck in your brother's eye thing with the plank in your own. Take care of your own first. Um, we all take away as far as our Torah is concerned, respecting our judges, respecting our elders, even if they're wrong, we have to respect the office they are with the ruling they gave the best we can of us, what they've given to us without deviating. May not like it, may disagree with it, may think it's immoral, whatever the case would be, but we have the obligation to follow it because they are as honoring our father and our mother. That is one of the Ten Commandments. So we have the obligation to do so. And uh, see, we also have, see, oh, and also, and we go the kings or priests that, sorry, priests, but kings, people in charge, when kings, kings will naturally try to, uh, to consolidate and centralize power. That's what they do. The more centralized power they have, the more they have other, over the people. It's our obligation as human citizens to not do so in our own households. Don't try to centralize your power. This is, this, it doesn't work that way. And don't, in your own nation, don't allow centralization of power over any, any given group or small group of people. We still have to honor the officer in. We don't want to have them or allow them to centralize or have major control over things. So this makes sense on the nature of how we honor our father and mother. Any questions about how we honoring our father and mother, honoring our nation, honoring our leaders, as well as honoring our God? Any comments, questions about this Torah portion then? Okay. Well, close with the prayer then. Almighty God, thank you for our Torah portion. Thank you for instructing us and showing us how we take care of ourselves and take care of our nation and take care of the people around us. May we respect your way of life, Father, and be good servants to you. May you bless us, Father, and help us to apply what we have learned to our own personal lives and the nation around us and the people whom we love and care for in our community and our, and our congregation too. Father, grant our families peace. Grant us peace. We praise you and ask your blessing on the rest of our Shabbat. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.